This is Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to the TCF World Podcast, Episode 30. I'm here with my colleague Michael Wahid Hanna, and today we're joined by Sara Deeb, an Associated Press writer who covers the Middle East. Thanks for coming in to talk to us here in our office in New York, Sara. Thank you for having me. So you just came here from the ISIS front lines near Bahuz, if I understand. Can you tell us what the scene was like there where you were reporting on the last stand of the so-called territorial caliphate? I left about a week ago. It was um, the beginning of the end that lasted for a very long time, the end. Um, it's a really small area. Um, there were thousands of people that continued to come out of that area. Very, very weird scenes, apocalyptically. People dragging their kids, women with bags and luggage coming out of that really small area. They continued to come all the time. We didn't know where they were coming from. This is supposedly the area where ISIS was making its last stand. Um, there were lots of uh, families, members. So was is this like a town, a city? Like, I, I don't even really understand okay. what, what this okay. this last stand was. It's a, it's, it's a riverside small village at the end of Syria and on the border with Iraq. It's a um, farmer town um, that was basically where the group ended after losing repeatedly villages and towns in that, in that geography, in that eastern, eastern Syria bit. It's um, where um, the group basically had built tunnels and foxholes to survive or to, to make that last stand after losing repeatedly territory from one, one part of Syria and, and Iraq. So the size of the territory obviously changed, but the other thing that changed a lot and interests me is um, the estimates of the fighters. Um, we were told this was the last stand, a matter of days, uh, and then the number of fighters that kept coming out, the number of people that were there kept multiplying in a way. And it uh, put into doubt for me all of the estimates we've heard for all these many years about numbers. You, I mean, do you have any sense about why some of those estimates were so wrong? And, you know, what, what does that mean in terms of broader estimates about numbers of ISIS fighters? I mean, there was, there was a, a sense at one point that there was no... Um, there was no, no one really knew how many people were there and they kept, they kept changing their numbers. There was a sense that a lot of people were living underground. There were people living in tunnels. There were people living in caves. Um, I think there was a sense among journalists and people covering this not to take the estimates seriously anymore because one day it's 1,500, one day it's 500, one day 5,000 people come out of the enclave at once with mixed between civilians and men who are, you know, fighting aged and look like they could possibly be fighters that were surrounding, surrendering. So, um, so those are, that's like a real number because those are the people you were able to see coming actually out. see. So, the, so every day we would um, see hundreds of people coming out and then we'd say, oh, there's only 1,000 1, left inside. And I was like, how do you make the estimate? Where do you see them? How do you, how do you calculate? Why do you tell us 1,500? So uh, Sada, were, were you able to talk to these people coming out of, of ISIS, uh, out of ISIS land? Sure, sure. A lot of the, a lot of the families were accessible. They, we could, we could sit and 
uh, we could approach them. A lot of the foreign fighters or foreign foreigners coming out of that area were not because they'd be taken on the side and screened and uh, searched by the coalition and members of the the U.S.-led coalition and, and uh, I think U.S. Marines at one point, but we were not able to approach those and talk to them. But a lot of the locals and a lot of the, a, a lot of the local men of fighting age and a lot of the family members or women and 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 women lots of women so these were were syrian and iraqi people and then at one point there was uh, there were there were also no there were actually also russian women there were uzbek women there were french women there were polish women there were people from i mean there were people from all over the world it was really eerie to like see that they were but the, but we're talking about women. The, the more access we had were to the families who were coming out. Few, few, few times we were able to talk to men. What was your sense of of what these these uh, ISIS members? You know, were they repentant? Uh, was there an arc that they saw to their their, their defeat? It, it was interesting. I was there for four weeks, basically, and um, there was a there was a period where people coming out of of inside were were really tired and didn't have anything to say. There was there. This was my first impression, is that they were just really tired and hungry, and mothers who were trying to just get out of there. And then, as time passed, you know, there was a there was a combination of military operations and and end of military operations. So as time passed. We got to see a lot more hardliners or defenders of the state. They would come out and say, "Yeah, we're 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 out. We have to get out. We're we're injured and we need to get treatment. But this is not going anywhere. This is not the end. The world is combined to fight us, and we're not gonna we're not gonna. This is not the end of the Islamic state." Was this like a like a Yet another act of propaganda, or do you see this as as true believers uh, uh, get doing you know in 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 whatever circumstance they're in, sharing their credo? It's it's interesting you say that because I think at one point after seeing this so much so much of those so much of them coming out, there was a sense that this is basically the seed of a new Islamic state that we're we're taking out and we're planting somewhere else. I had no I had no illusion that these these people are actually believers in. Um, what the Islamic State stood for. I mean, I think some of them would say, some of them who are a little thoughtful would say, well, this group, this organization, this structure as it is right now has been um, crushed, but it's not over. And we will, we still stand for jihad. We still stand for, we need, we want what their, what their idea of God's law on earth, this is what. Um, so I don't know. I don't think these people are propagandists. I think they're, they're actual believers, and they had very little criticism for the Islamic State, um, even to the last to its its last days. One of the really interesting things that I found out talking to people coming out is how the welfare system, for instance, for the Islamic State was operating until basically the last thirty minutes of you know of this whole thing. There was they were keeping widows fed, they were keeping. Um, distribution of food in certain places. There was a sense of discrimination. Some people thought that the Iraqis were getting all the all the best treatment while the while the Syrians 
And interestingly, some of the foreign women were also saying that when they were once super class, they now felt uh, a little bit as a, of a burden. So I think there was a transformation towards a, an Iraqi local organization of sorts. But I guess judging by the geography, right, like the area they're going to have to run to or where they existed is that these are the remaining leaders. Um, yeah, so w without, yeah, without being too alarmist, but I think these people are probably going to go somewhere else. We have thousands of people now living in a camp somewhere in Syria with very little resources, with very little... Um, I don't know what you do with a situation like this, but these are people who lived under Islamic State and they didn't lose faith in it, in, in, from what I heard or saw. Well, a lot of the coverage in the West, here in the United States at least, was was focused on you know, what to do with some of these, particularly there's a great focus on uh, the female members. Um, did, did you, you know, there, it's still very early, there are no clear plans. Did these fleeing female members of ISIS have a sense of what was going to happen to them? There, you know, there's a big chunk of of the foreign fight, foreign members of ISIS that were French, and I met a, a number of them, and most of them don't want to go home. They are happy to stay in the camp, and they say they would rather stay in Syria than 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 be repatriated or go home. That's their expression. This is how they felt about it. But uh, I think in terms of policy or decisions or what to do with them, I don't think it's clear yet. The the Americans, the coalition has asked the European countries to step up and take their own people home and try them there. But I think the debate in Europe is um, not, not clear where this is heading. There was a proposal, I think, by Iraq to take some of the French fighters and try them, put them on trial in Iraqi um, justice system and I don't know how that has fared yet. I haven't had a chance to follow up on that. Well I mean the 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 problem is the gray area of all these of all these people who are say clearly ISIS sympathizers but who don't have blood on their hands because it's it's relatively straightforward. What do you do with someone who was a murderer, right? Someone who killed a bunch of people, you know, some some place or another might put that person on trial. What do you do with these say these women who were brandishing their shoes at you who are uh, going to be willing to join whatever the next iteration of ISIS is, but who aren't necessarily killers. I think this is really interesting and a very difficult question to, to answer because there's so much um, buildup against people who ended up being there, some of them by choice, some of them, like, I, I mean, I focused on how people were sympathizers and supporters, but there were also a number of people who just ended up there because their husbands were there or they had nowhere to, no way to pay a smuggler to get out of ISIS land because at one point they were not allowing people to get out. So I think it's a very interesting question. Well, I mean, we can imagine a very clear distinction between uh, a Syrian Iraqi uh, wife forced to travel with her husband, a fighter, as opposed to you know, someone coming from abroad to travel to this new Islamic state. I mean, uh, to me, those are fundamentally different categories. And, you know, in, in the United States, we have a clear concept of material support. You don't have to have blood on your hands to be morally culpable in, in these cases. I mean, it's not necessarily legally transferable to other jurisdictions, but it seems to me that these, you know, uh, even a, a female f f traveling to the Islamic State from Holland um, 
is probably in a very different category in my mind than uh, a Syrian wife forced to travel with her husband. And I think even even within th- that distinction, there are, li- there are issues here. I mean, there's a 15-year-old who decided to come from the United States to join the Islamic State. And then after a couple of years or after seeing what it's really like, is she is she responsible for what what has happened in should she be tried and should Syria try her or should the US try her i think that the number there are numbers of of questions and i think we just have to first of all find out who's there who remains what it looks like what's their profile what they've done i think there's a lot to learn still from what was going on inside and i think also right now the num- i mean first of all the number of children coming out of the barouz that small area was just unbelievable there was women coming out pregnant still women who just delivered a week ago there were families of eight or nine kids and just just number incredible number of kids there was also something that caught my attention is that at one point there were fewer boys coming out they're mostly girls they were absent boys from you know the age of 10 to like teenage boys and i think that that was kind of hair raising also because are they are they fighting or are they keeping them inside or are they being arrested and take like it was just it was notable to, to actually the number of boys that were the, the the uneven number between girls and and boys coming out but i also think now they're going to end up in this big camp where there are 60,000 people living, half of them are children, and what kind of, you know, what kind of living condition, what kind of, in, you know, brain washing is, continues to happen in these, in these living conditions, and there's no answer to what you're going to do with them for the longest time. I think this is also a v- probably one of the most pressing issues to, to deal with and respond to. You can, you can actually reverse course for these kids if, or these children if there is something that's done early enough. Citizenship and its Discontents is a Century Foundation initiative that brings together dozens of researchers to explore the crisis of identity, inclusion, and community in the contemporary Middle East. Our contributors conducted extensive fieldwork and aimed to open a new line of discussion in the region and among Western policymakers. Beginning April 9th, you can see our research and join the conversation. Please visit the Century Foundation's website tcf.org and click on the citizenship tab. You're listening to the TCF World podcast. I'm uh, with Michael Hanna and uh, our guest, uh, Sarah Deeb, Associated Press writer who's just back uh, from covering the fall of the last ISIS enclave in Bahuz. Before the break, you were uh, you were talking about the, the these children, um, and I want to go back to that. Um, were you able to speak to any of these kids or teenagers? I actually didn't do much talking to the kids. There was a lot of um, hungry kids with, crying um, and asking for food or, or looking very distraught or visibly very troubled. So there was, a, there was very little talking that I was able to do with them. There were kids um, um, who were just hanging off their the clothes of was that for eth- for ethical reasons that Bo- you didn't both. want to speak to I mean I think I think a combination of both I mean s- some of these kids just looked really visibly troubled there was no uh, like a questioning journalist that has no relation with them to them um I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to just ask how are you more than just how are you how are you doing this is a big 
uh, a big problem. You, you say, you know, the, it's not too late to reverse course for, for a kid. Um, and yet we know that in, in Syria and Iraq, there is not a well-funded infrastructure of child psychologists or, you know, the, 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 the kinds of things, interventions that you would want to, say, deprogram or support or help these kids. So what, what happens to these kids actually? I mean, I think right, very exactly what you're saying. I think there's no, we don't know how we can help them at this stage. I think they're put together, they put, they're sent to a camp with their family, with their mothers, um, north of the Barouz area. And I think for now, these camps are not very well funded. They don't have much uh, uh, in the way of aid beyond food, and, and if that if that's if that's what you're asking, so do, well, so I'm thinking in terms of, of psychological support and some and of the some of the community things that, belonging. I didn't I didn't actually visit the the camp myself, but some of the some of the stories I heard is that there was some attempt to teach the kids some um, non-Islamic state uh, education program, but I don't know the facilities are up and and ready to handle something like this, and I don't think they've. They, I mean, they, the aid workers are complaining of lack of food and, and, and survival kits. So I don't know if there are enough resources that are geared to education. And Do they become ISIS 3.0? I mean, I think this is the fear, right? This is, the, this is why I was saying that it's not too late to reverse course. It's if there is some kind of um, whether to send them home, whether to put them in some educational facilities. I, I mean, I'm not a policymaker here, but I think the the obvious thing is that um, these kids can be um, can be handled with care, if if one can say that. Another big question, as this you know, as this last enclave is still, I suppose, falling. Um, you know, the fate of. Uh, those taken captive. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on Yazidis and Yazidi women in particular. Um, and I guess there have been some who have surfaced of late. Um, did you have any exposure to to those types of incidences? There were at least um, 40, I think 40 Yazidis that came out when I was there, most of them children, a lot of them underage. Um, many of them were either married, forced married, like slave to ISIS fighters or they worked for them. A lot of the boys that I saw were, um, what, nine, ten? So I think they were like like toddlers when they first were kidnapped or taken to. They looked like they served um, in homes or they looked really battered, very tired. Um, and I understand that the rescue, there was a lot of concentrated rescue effort from Yazidis who were outside of the area to try to find and locate these kids to bring them home. And I think there are also Yazidi foundations, local Yazidi foundations that took them in to try to send them to their families where back back home. But the sense was a lot of them were really brainwashed. They were too young when they were taken. So many of the women refused to take off their, their all-encompassing uh, black robes that they had on, I think. Had they sort of been converted to ISIS thinking? Is they, that? Yeah, that the, they were married. When, I mean, one of the one of the girls was, I mean, she looked 12, but apparently she's like 15. And she said she's been married, um, married, quote unquote, to an ISIS fighter for the last two years. She looked completely smitten with the guy. And I can just imagine this is someone that took her in 
and whatever he did, you know. But she d- didn't know anybody but him and uh, d- had no contact with Yazidis for all that duration. So I think it was, it was very, d- this was a very difficult story to tell because most of them were, like I said, children, um, uh, traumatized, and I don't know how much of the... Uh, we journalists are prepared to deal with cases of that kind of brainwash and trauma for someone who's been kidnapped and just rescued. I mean, from you know, from our perspective, ISIS is such a catalog of horrors. And when we, you know, when we look at this final chapter of this iteration of them, it, it looks like a display of all their worst atrocities. Uh, but I'm I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of uh, you know the, their constituents, and I'm wondering if they look at this uh, at this moment of, of military defeat, um, and if there's a you know yet another sick ISIS legend being born around Bahus that will be uh, used to fuel whatever the next iteration of this of this movement is. I mean, I think like I was saying earlier before the break is that there, there, are, lots of, there are lots of Iraqis who are in charge of whatever is left of that organization. So there is a lot of, I think there's a change in the nature at this moment. It seems that um, many... Um, Many of those who remain are of sons, children of the area. They've lived there, they grew there, and they know they still have loyalties, they still have friends, they still have tribal connections. I think that that's not going anywhere. And I think there are lots of sleeper cells in the area also. Many, many attacks happened when we were there in villages and towns surrounding the Barouz area, clearly of um, revenge-type nature. And then I think we saw lots of media still, propaganda videos coming out of inside Barouz even yesterday. You know, there was a, like a, as the, as the place falls, crumbles completely and is taken over, there is still a video of Defiance saying, well, we've fought our best and this is now God's will. And there, I mean, these videos appeal to people in, in Syria, in Iraq and outside. And also in that same week, there are people still coming out of the enclave to, Today, there are people coming out in trucks from inside here, from inside the Barouz area, despite having no territory, almost no territory at all. It's uh, for me as a journalist who was there, I couldn't, I just couldn't understand where these people were coming from. When you a, first got there, I imagine you thought this was going to be a much shorter story, uh, and obviously, you were there for weeks. It's still. Um, getting close, we are told. It seems like it really is getting close. But why Why did it take so long? Why did it take so much longer than anybody imagined at the outset? The $100 question, the $100, the $100 million question. <laughs> I've got $100. Um, that's yeah, that's easy. <laughs> um, the... There was a, there was a lot of military explanation at first, you know, that these are, they are well armed, they will, they will die fighting and no one wants to lose more soldiers when the group is dying at the end. It's not worth um, the fight. I think there is truth to that. I think think the SDF and the coalition got them where they want them to be. Like it's a very difficult area to, to expand or grow or get out of. I think they... Uh, had their weapons and they had their suicide belts and they were just stuck, besieged there. I My sense was that there was no rush from the coalition or the SDF to finish this off with first 
they were so keen on making sure there's not a massacre of civilians in the last chapter. This is a huge deal for the Kurdish-led uh, fighters that uh, have fought this battle with the Americans in Syria. They feel very proud and very successful in ending the caliphate and i think they wanted to end on a good on a good note well and, and there's i mean there's a lot of triumphalism you know among all of us who are horrified by isis so there's this you know great celebration about the military victory uh but i think we're still we're still somewhat at a loss of why this group got so strong why it was so popular who these who these people are and how we can keep them from re-emerging the way they they, they did um, and I'm struck. I, I was in January. I was in Iraq, and I went to some of the IDP camps in Anbar province, where we have, among other people, ISIS supporters uh, who've been there for years. And and what what stayed with me was they've been in some in some cases they've been in these camps having kids for years, and they're willing to stay indefinitely. Um, and they haven't changed their views at all. And they're willing to wait quite a long time. And they come from backgrounds that are quite poor to begin with. They come from rural areas. So for them, living in, a, in an IDP camp isn't some unbearable hardship. It's something they view as a, as a temporary reversal. And they have, uh, you know, not, it's not much worse in terms of quality of life than where they used to be. And in terms of ideology, they're still committed to, to these views. And I, 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 I wasn't sure what, what one does uh, with that observation. I mean, I think this is this has been we've been in this circle for quite some time. I mean, Daesh was the, like you said, ISIS was the the horror, the cat, the worst horror catalog we've seen in terms of jihadist or militants in the region. But I think we've had, I mean, don't forget in Syria, in the western side of in the western side of the country, there is another group that is also, I mean, maybe not maybe not as. Um, media savvy or as media crazy as ISIS was. But we have Al-Qaeda militants also living, organizing and and keeping territory in, an, in the other part of Syria with three million people living with them. That's another thing we're going to have to look at after this is over. It's not Daesh, it's not ISIS, but they are also militants, maybe this time they're more Syrian than they are Iraqis and they have fewer foreign fighters with them, but they, they still live in that area and they will also not, we're not going to kill them. They're going to still, there will be another manifestation of that problem somewhere else. And I think with, like I was saying earlier, with the Iraqis, the Iraqi ISIS branch, they still exist. They have. They've continuously done attacks and kept a presence in Iraq even more so than Syria. So, yeah. I mean, I think the the observation. I agree with you. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's something there, but I don't know if we've ever come up with a way to handle that. Well, I mean, the the bigger question you're pointing to as well is someone who's been covering the war in Syria for years now. If we're looking, you're looking at Idlib, um, but. More broadly, your sense of um, this is a war you're going to continue to cover. Um, what do you think that war, it, it's obviously the intensity and the scope of the war is diminishing in many ways. But what do you think the future contours of that conflict look like? That's, uh, yeah, I haven't had a chance to yet take a <laughs> deep breath after coming out of this to think about it. But one of the things that we actually um, sadly joked about in 
when we were in Barouz is that we probably 20 years from now, we're going to be coming back to cover the same thing. This is not going away. We don't see a solution. We don't see anyone that has come up with a, like you said, counter ideology or a solution to how to handle, how to handle this. So I, on one end there, I don't see those extremists, uh, groups with, a f with a fan base going anywhere. Um, anytime soon they still like you said they still have a lot of support either for many reasons but I also think in Syria it's very difficult to see how this country can be put back together anytime soon either I don't see anyone any any one of the players that are involved in a war there big big powers that is not not the, not just the, the militants or the armed groups have uh, any intentions of either leaving or finding a, a long-lasting solution to what has started as people, what has started as a war of people demanding to see a change in government. The government is staying eight years after a very um, disastrous, difficult, one of the worst m wars in, in the modern era. And this government is, ha has remained and now we have to deal with how the... Um, deal with that government and how to deal with a country that has been torn into like five different pieces. This is all formula for continued unrest and and non-state actors to find a place to to thrive. And and it also is important to remember that uh, governance is important, having an effective state is important, but extremist ideology and ISIS is in particular flourished in places like France and the UK and apparently the University of Alabama, as well as in the uh, failing uh, uh, precincts of rural Syria and rural Iraq. So it's not just a question of rebuilding an order that can contain places, but but also somehow addressing the ideological gaps or the needs for community that that, that somehow this ideology has tapped into. True. I mean, we've seen we're seeing all kinds of right wing radicalism everywhere. I think that's a that's a problem. Bigger. I mean, that's that's our probably modern era question to answer is how are we going to deal with people on the fringe, extreme fringe, from all kinds of sides. But when you've seen a country that has been that has been the scene in the theater for that kind of um, quote unquote dream, um, you worry about how it will um that those those seeking that dream will use we utilize that territory in the coming in the coming years i think in at least in my world view and what i deal with on every on day to day is that this is where we're when that's why i said we probably be dealing with this for another decade or more and uh syria and iraq are surely going to remain at the forefront of this very very difficult problem Sara, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the TCF World Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, you've been listening to Michael Wahid Hanna, and I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Until uh, the next episode of the podcast. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.